welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Welcome to the Madden America podcast. Uh, my name is Justin Carter, and I'm the research news editor for the Madden America website. You can read our articles there under the research news tab on the front page. And today, uh, I'm very fortunate to be interviewing Aves Aftab, who's a psychiatrist in Cleveland, Ohio, and a clinical assistant professor of psychiatry at Case Western Reserve University. He is a member of the Executive Council of the Association for the Advancement of Philosophy and Psychiatry, and has been actively involved in initiatives to educate psychiatrists and trainees on the intersection of philosophy and psychiatry. He leads the interview series as well, uh, called Conversations in Critical Psychiatry for the Psychiatric Times, which explores critical and philosophical perspectives in psychiatry. And he's engaged with some of the most prominent commentators within and outside the profession who have made meaningful criticisms of the status quo. He is also a member of the Psychiatric Times Advisory Board. Uh, welcome to the Madden America podcast. Uh, it's great to have you here. Thank you, Justin. I'm pretty happy to be here talking to you. Thanks. So to get started, uh, we want to learn a little bit about your background and what led you to a career in medicine and psychiatry. Oh, wow. That's a, that's a long time ago. So um, I, I think uh, a lot of people might not know that um, I'm, I'm from Pakistan. Uh, that's where I was born and grew up and uh, did my medical school as well. Before I uh, went into medical school, um, I, I was really interested in philosophy and, and I was uh, seriously considering the idea of whether I could pursue that on a professional basis. But philosophy as an uh, academic discipline, especially as a, as a way of making money, was uh, pretty much non-existent. I do have a lot of physicians in my family. Uh, my elder sister is actually a physician herself. So there was all this passive exposure that I was getting through my, you know, my sister, my uh, uncles, you know, my aunts, uh, many of whom are physicians uh, in, in Pakistan. So, you know, seeing their, their example, it seemed like a natural choice uh, for me to, you know, be drawn to medicine as well. So, so I ended up uh, going, going to med school. And uh, because I was, I was really interested in philosophy and psychology uh, prior to med school, when I started med school, it became pretty clear to me, uh, you know, pretty much from, you know, from the beginning that, that the only specialty that really attracted me intensely and strongly was, uh, was psychiatry. So um, I, uh, in, in my mind, I was pretty set from, from the beginning of the med school that I was, I was going to be a psychiatrist. It was not an easy decision, though, because at, at the time uh, I, I started medical school, there, there was a lot of stigma, and there actually still is, but there, there was a lot of stigma in Pakistan surrounding mental health, and, and this stigma also affected uh, people in the, in the mental health profession, psychiatrists, psychologists, and other. And so there, were, there, there was a general perception at that time that... Um, uh, that sort of like good doctors don't don't go into psychiatry. Uh, that you know, if you if you have sort of like talent, if you're if you're intelligent, that you're going to be drawn to specialties like surgery or or you know one of the branches of medicine. So uh, there was a lot of resistance, uh, you know, from my family and including some of my uh, teachers in medical school who thought like you know why are you why are you going for psychiatry? You could do something else. And um, so, you know, it was a, it was a process of uh, kind of like, you know, partly kind of like talking to them, negotiating with them and explaining to them that, you know, I think this is, I'm really passionate about this. And unless people like me go into the field, how, how will it change? Uh, and you spoke about the uh, stigma in Pakistan around both being a, a service user of psychiatric services, but also of being a professional in the field as well. What was psychiatric training actually like in Pakistan? How did that cultural difference impact um, your experience in medical school? Were there any major differences between you know, how the training uh, was there and, and then once you came to the U.S. And, and how it's been here? Culturally speaking, that there are uh, tremendous differences in, in how um, I think medicine in general is, is practiced in, in, in Pakistan versus U.S. And, and, and those differences are uh, present um, in, in psychiatry as well. I, I have to say, like most of my um, experience of, of psychiatric training in, in Pakistan comes as, as being a medical student. 
And in, in Pakistan, uh, medical training uh, loosely follows the British model. In, in general, I think uh, uh, psychiatry in Pakistan uh, struggles with being uh, really under-resourced. Uh, they, you know, the the ratio of psychiatrists to uh, to patients is, is is very low. The availability of medications, especially newer medications, at, at that time was was a big uh, was was a big problem. And uh, you know, in 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 general, there were a lot of challenges within the system. So, for example, you know, uh, w- w- when I started my psychiatric training in in US, some of the things that that were really prominent to me. Was uh, how um, how many uh, sort of like you know that there is a legal apparatus that that exists here uh, with regards to uh, mental health care, especially when it comes to involuntary or forced psychiatric uh, detention or or sort of like pathways such as um, you know sort of like describing and what are the situations and what are the circumstances in which, you know, someone can be uh, admitted to a psychiatric hospital against their will, uh, you know, what are the circumstances in which you can like petition the court for, for forced medication. So there, there is some sort of like a, a legal apparatus, some sort of uh, a system of rules uh, ex- exist that, you know, uh, set some, some, set some boundaries and also establishes some uh, accountability in, in a certain way. Uh, versus in, in Pakistan, there's there's literally nothing when when it comes to um, you know uh, laws related to mental health care. So there's this sense of chaos in which you know when you're treating someone and let's say the family is concerned about uh, a, a patient who might be you know either going psychotic or might be experiencing uh, episodes of mania or, or severe depression. There, there's no clear cut pathway as to like what is what is supposed to be done, what, what's going to be next. It's not like they can call like 911 or, or the police there and, you know, ha- have the patient transported against their will uh, to, to, the, to the emergency room or, or to, to the physician. So, so people end up sort of like responding in very different, sometimes creative ways. And, and, and sometimes that involves like deception on part of the families, which sometimes can sort of like cross into the boundary of what we may call unethical, like it's pretty common there that uh, family members would obtain uh, uh, psychiatric medications and mix it in the food of, of a person without that person knowing, you know, and so I mean, that's not uh, ethically defensible, but I think you can sort of like see it in a, in a, as, a, as a consequence of a society that has failed to develop other ways, you know, formal ways of, of, of addressing these problems. And another thing, another thing is that here, um, you know, majority of psychiatric pres- prescriptions, you know, like you have to go to a doctor, a doctor has to prescribe the medication to you. Uh, in Pakistan, you know, things are a little bit changing now, but back when I was there, it was essentially you could go to any pharmacy and get any medication you want. So um, there, there wasn't that, uh, the, the, the psychiatry was, was not the gatekeeper of psychiatric medications there. Like anyone could go to any pharmacy and get, you know, and obtain a, a benzodiazepine or, or obtain an antidepressant. So even though the number of psychiatrists might be limited, you know, the use of psychiatric medications was still like very common just because, you know, people could get it, get them on their own. There's another uh, sort of like uh, interesting thing that I noticed in, in terms of uh, patient presentation. So I think, I do think when it comes to uh, depression or anxiety, um, a lot of people in Pakistan presented with what would be consider, uh, considered a neurasthenia type of uh, presentation in which they are focusing much more on uh, somatic symptoms such as headache or, or physical fatigue or, or uh, weight and digestion issues. So there was this emphasis uh, that uh, to sort of like, you know, privileging body problems, uh, physical problems over, over mental health problems. So people tended to present uh, when they were depressed or anxious in, in that classic neurasthenia sort of manner. We used to see a lot of conversion disorder uh, cases, uh, far more than, than, than I've seen in the in, in U.S., and um, and I think this is partly the fact that uh, the conversion disorder is uh, is seen much more in, in females, and 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 women are, you know, 
especially they were at that time, but they still are highly oppressed in in, in many ways, uh, uh, you know, within the larger social system. So I think the the high rates of conversion disorder that we were seeing there were uh, sort of like a, a barometer of, uh, of of social oppression. For you know, in in that same vein of like how um, culture and societies can affect presentation. Uh, before I started my psychiatry training in the U.S., uh, I, had, I had spent uh, almost uh, nearly one year of psychiatric training in, in Doha, Qatar. And, uh, you know, in, and things are, you know, Doha, Qatar is very, uh, very different either from Pakistan or from the U.S. in the, in the way their society is organized. And um, in, in Qatar, they have uh, uh, almost what you can call a slave class. You, you have these laborers that come from various South Asian countries like Pakistan, Nepal, Bangladesh, India, who are, you know, generally illiterate, who, uh, you know, who come to Qatar seeking work, and then they get trapped there for various reasons, and, and they're working in really horrible conditions. And, um, and while I was working there, we were seeing extremely high rates of uh, what is called a brief and reactive psychosis. That, that is, these episodes of brief psychosis that, uh, that seem to arise in, in situations of really high stress. And so, so that was a very common presentation among those um, um, laborers uh, in, in, in Qatar. And versus in contrast, it's, it's relatively rare to see uh, uh, brief reactive psychosis just because the, the society is not... Uh, oppressive for, for most of us in, in, the, in the same way as it might be in other countries. Yeah, and it sounds like your experiences were really uh, rich for thinking about these philosophical questions that come up in psychiatry and psychology as well, as far as the role of culture in the experience of mental distress, uh, uh, as far as issues around um, coercion and deception in psychiatry. And I'm wondering about how your philosophical training continued to develop during this period of medical school. I know that you produced an excellent blog on the history of modern philosophy while you were in medical school, I believe. Um, so I'm wondering, how did that study of philosophy continue for you? In which ways did it uh, complement your medical training? And in what ways did your medical training um, challenge uh, some of the philosophical ideas you were reading about? Thank you. Yeah, I, I think, you know, as, as I mentioned, uh, my, my real love uh, was, was always, uh, you know, even before I started med school, it was, it was really uh, philosophy. So um, even though I, I was in med school and, you know, I, I think everyone recognizes how, how busy med, med school can be, I, I still was uh, devoting a lot of time uh, to, to my personal reading of, uh, of philosophy. And at, the, at that time, I was doing a lot of reading in, in history of, of philosophy, especially history of modern philosophy uh, from, from Descartes and, and, and onward and, and trying to uh, understand the, the trajectory uh, of philosophical evolution and uh, trying to sort of like get a better a sense of that. So as I was doing uh, all, all that study, I was sort of like keeping notes. But once I had accumulated a, a relatively large volume of notes, I, I realized that with you know, some more effort, I could um, give them a little bit more um, form and shape as, as sort of this uh, book, you know, in, in, a, in a blog form. So it ended up being this blog, or you can sort of like call it like a blog book on, on the history of modern philosophy from an amateur's perspective. And I, th I think uh, that personal study uh, gave me a pretty uh, solid foundation for uh, further uh, philosophical inquiries that, you know, and further philosophical uh, areas that, that, that I was uh, interested in, in, in later on. I initially, went, when I was doing all of this uh, study in philosophy, I initially I didn't see it as being that relevant to medicine. There was, you know, a bit of a disconnect in my mind. But but I think as, as I progressed, I, I began to appreciate the ways in which um, philosophical thinking um, can inform medicine, but also sort of like the ways in which there are all these hidden um, uh, conceptual dynamics. Uh, that are present in, in way people how make sense of distress in which, in which people um, you know talk about uh, disease categories and 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 the way they approach them. So I, be, I began to see the, the this hidden 
philosophical structure uh, beneath the the practice of medicine. And and this became much more apparent to me um, when when it came to psychiatry that because psychiatry is is one area where things are relatively more subjective, where there's a much stronger influence of, of values and so it's you know it's it's easier to see the influence uh, of some of those philosophical assumptions in in how things are practiced. But I, I don't think that the nature of the underlying philosophical assumptions is that different in the rest of medicine. Uh, another big influence in this area happened um, during my uh, final year of med school, and that's when I, I became uh, familiar with uh, the work of. Um, the, the famous existential psychotherapist uh, Irvin Yalom. Um, so I, at that time, uh, I was I was personally really uh, interested in um, in the existentialist philosophers. So I I was uh, kind of exploring the, the views of uh, Nietzsche uh, at, at that time, Heidegger, Sartre, Camus, and uh, you know so sort of like you know when, when I um, when I discovered Yalom and and I started really I started reading him. That was uh, th- that made a huge impression on me, you know, especially as, as a medical student. And I just like I loved the way um, Yalom integrated existential thinking into his practice of uh, of psychotherapy and psychiatry. Uh, the way he made sense of uh, of people's distress, the way he made sense of their anxieties. And 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 I, and I really enjoyed that, and I think that, um, and I'm really glad that that I was able to uh, read and appreciate Yalom at, at such an early stage, because it it gave me a much uh, richer appreciation of what you know psychiatric practice could be like if if, if done in the right fashion. Um, later on, after med school, but before starting my um, re- residency in um, in US. Uh, I also read uh, The Divided Self by R.D. Link, um, who, as you know, many people would recognize as being one of the, uh, the so-called anti-psychiatry um, you know, thinkers or anti-psychiatry philosophers. The, the Divided Self was his first book. That was before when you know, anyone would have recognized or, or labeled him as, as being uh, you know, what we would call anti-psychiatry. But it's, it's a very fascinating book because... Arlie Ling is is trying to understand um, psychosis from from the perspective of existentialism. He, he's trying to make sense of the of the delusions, the the ponders, disorganization, the, the the paranoia from you know uh, from an existential perspective, and he's desperately trying to see meaning in that. I I don't think I was fully convinced by by what what I but by what I read in that. But uh, but I think that very that the sheer force and, and beauty of that intellectual effort left left a deep mark for me. Yeah, and you mentioned that uh, you started reading works of philosophy that were being applied to clinical practice in different ways. So existentialism from Yalom being applied to psychotherapy primarily, and then uh, Artie Lang's work taking existentialism and phenomenology and applying it to uh, the experience, the lived experience of psychosis and, and, and how to engage with it in a way that could be meaningful. Um, but these two camps of sort of a, sort of a, a pure philosophy uh, of psychiatry uh, and then a critical or sort of a applied, engaged application of philosophy in, in critical psychiatry. How did you come to, um, after R.D. Lang, explore more of the critical psychiatry and anti-psychiatry movements? And how did that shape your thinking? When it comes to the, um, you know, sort of like this relationship between uh, philosophy of psychiatry and versus sort of like, you know, what, what we now loosely call uh, critical psychiatry, uh, th- there is a big overlap, but they are also in, in some ways um, relatively distinct and somewhat insulated from each other. So I was, uh, you know, for, for much of my psychiatric training, I, uh, I, I, I was sort of like actively reading literature and in philosophy of psychiatry. And, and I was familiar with uh, the, the intellectual work of of, of the classic uh, anti-psychiatrists, you know, Thomas Saz, Artie Ling, and, and Michel Foucault. But but despite that, despite having sort of like, you know, philosophical familiarity with, with the classic anti-psychiatry thinking, and at least the literature, philosophy of psychiatry literature that I was engaging with 
wasn't uh, explicitly or wasn't inten- intentionally dealing with uh, what, what we may now recognize as being critical psychiatry issues. The, the way we classically think of the, the critical psychiatry movement is that it, ha- it has very strong roots in, in, the, in the UK, particularly in the critical psychiatry network. And, and I think un- until recently, they, um, you know, the, the influence in, in America was, was not that much, particularly if you look at, you know, um, like American journals or most of the, uh, you know, um, academic literature that originates from inside America and that, you know, American trainees are more exposed to. So even though there were articles and things related to critical psychiatry that were showing up in, in British journals and some of the international journals, you know, I, I wasn't really getting a lot of exposure to that um, in uh, in American journals. And, and also another thing is that I think a lot of these uh, critical psychiatry debates were happening in a much more prominent fashion uh, online, especially on Twitter, maybe on, on some of the blogs. So the, the end result is that my exposure to sort of like this body of views of what we would call critical psychiatry happened pretty late, almost sort of like near near the the end of my uh, psychiatric training, um, and and I think it was you know I would say it was relatively shortly before um, the the book uh, the edited book critical psychiatry that that was edited by Sandy Steingard uh, that came out. And but before that, I I did uh, almost one year before um, the Sandy Sandy Steingard's uh, edited volume on critical psychiatry came out. Uh, I did end up reading uh, Anatomy of an Epidemic uh, by Robert Whittaker. Now I you know I I don't think uh, like Robert Whittaker, at least in, in that book, like presents his views as being representative of some sort of like critical psychiatry. But I think, you know, loosely speaking, I think many would uh, place that book within the larger canon um, of that. And and that was a uh, uh, reading uh, Anatomy of an Epidemic and in, engaging with that ideas was, was quite an experience for me. I, I you know, the... Uh, the the book has had a pretty terrible reputation, you know. I you know most of the people that I, I had spoken to or people who had mentioned that be- book before had been pretty uh, superficial and dismissive about that, sort of like calling it sort of like you know extreme or or anti psychiatry. And so when I when I decided to read that, I, I was you know I was spe- expecting that this was something I'll kind of like quickly go through, and you know it's not something that I'll have to like you know spend a lot of uh, time and energy on. But that actually reading an acne of an epidemic ended up being a very jarring experience because sort of like I, I quickly realized that um, a, a, a lot of the arguments and a lot of the uh, the data that was presented in in the book was not easily dismissed, and and the and the nature of what was being discussed that is you know the, the possibility that um, uh, psychotropic medications can worsen uh, outcomes or worsen quality of life, you know, at, at least in a subset of patients, was what was one that was uh, particularly unsettling to me. So, you know, so I kind of like, you know, think back, you know, in, you know, to my sort of like relatively you know, naive days, you can say, when I, I wasn't exposed to, to this like larger body of work, and I was thinking that oh, I would just be like, you know, I'll quickly be done with it, versus, you know, uh, I read that book, and, you know, almost like two years later, I'm still thinking and, you know, trying to um, a- address those issues. So, you know, I, I, so I think like that book uh, left a pretty deep impression on me, but it, was, it wasn't just because like I accepted the arguments of the book or I was sort of like, you know, immediately con- convinced that every, everything that is being uh, said uh, uh, is correct. But I think I could see that, uh, you know, a lot of the arguments at, at the very least are, are worthy of serious engagement. And, and that this is something that, that I need to, uh, you know, figure out and, and make sense of. And, and as I started talking to other psychiatrists, you know, in, in the community, you know, I, I realized that a lot of other people had actually, you know, read the book too. And a lot of them were struggling to make sense of these issues in, in the same way as I was. So, you know, this was, uh, uh, you know, this was a relative surprise to me because, you know, most of 
uh, people who, who who have read this book, you know, especially within the psychiatric community, they uh, there's a tendency not to talk about these issues, you know. But you know, I think you know if you if you talk to them on a personal level, where you know they they might feel free to talk more openly. A lot of them would say that uh, that they were unsettled that 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 the book is not something that they can immediately dismiss, that this is something that they are actively trying to make sense of. Uh, you know, so that I think, you know, that book kind of like, you know, launched me into a, into a whole new different area of, of inquiry and, and, and study. And then much later on, I think, you know, I would say almost like seven, eight months ago when, when I started becoming more active on Twitter, that's when I started getting more exposure to uh, to the critical psychiatry folks in, in in the UK and started reading their stuff. Yeah, and so it's relatively recent that you uh, were exposed to um, the philosophy that's going on within the critical psychiatry movement, as well as the other uh, other arguments and, and data being presented. Uh, and then you uh, you've been leading this series of interviews for Psychiatric Times called Conversations in Critical Psychiatry, um, interviewing a, a number of these um, leading figures, as you said, in both philosophy of psychiatry, but also in critical psychiatry. Can you can you tell us about you know how that came about and and what your goals were for doing that interview series? Yeah. So w- when I uh, um, when I uh, started this uh, interview series, and uh, it's been a little over a year now that that the, that the series has has been ongoing. So at, at that time, I I was kind of like a little bit loosely aware of the the existence of uh, critical psychiatry movement. But like I said, it doesn't have that much of a presence in in US, at least in that formal sense. So I I didn't quite understand uh, sort of like critical psychiatry in the the same way as as someone from from UK or someone who who is really active on on Twitter might understand it. So I I had a relatively more uh, neutral idea about that term critical psychiatry as sort of like as being representative of sort of like the very diverse ways in which um, uh, critical thinking and, and criticisms are being uh, directed at, at psychiatry. And so I, I was very, uh, I was actively reading that literature and um, I, there was, uh, and I, I, there was, I, I felt a, a weird disconnect because I was reading these things that, that felt really, um, you know, sort of like serious, worth engaging with. But at the same time, there, you know, almost nobody in mainstream psychiatry was uh, was talking directly about these issues. There was a tendency to either ignore them, just kind of like being different to them, or or to talk about them in in informal settings. So th- that was a little per- frustrating for me because I thought that these critical perspectives have something valuable to offer uh, psychiatry, and that psychiatry, in fact, could really benefit by en- engaging with them, and it can help us, uh, you know, develop our our field uh, field further in a robust manner. So I, I wanted to. Um, uh, sort of like you know, start some kind of uh, an avenue where uh, we can have a meaningful engagement with with these critical ideas and and sort of like you know where I can get to highlight uh, some some of the issues that that I think are um, important for a for a field. And I I think I, I was lucky that I had a, a good working relationship with the uh, Psychiatric Times editorial uh, team at that at that time. And uh, you know I, when I I pitched that idea to them. And I think initially there was uh, some hesitation, you know, uh, you know, pretty understandably because like no one really had done anything like that, at least in sort of like mainstream psychiatry. So no one really knew like, you know, what exact shape this would take and how this would be received. But, uh, you know, they, uh, you know, they decided to take a chance on me. And, you know, I think I'm, I'm really glad that they did. And I think overall the, you know, the, Sort of like you know the series has has done pretty well. So uh, so going back to sort of like the, the reasons why you know so so one reason was that you know I want I wanted to highlight the the sorts of uh, criticisms the sorts of critical perspectives that I think we as a field needed to hear even even though you know I I uh, you know I may not personally agree with all of them or I I may not think that this is something that all psychiatrists should think that way but I still think this is it's very important that we hear these things and, and engage with these things secondly you know I was uh, I, I was still uh, you know um, 
in this project of sort of like learning more and imbibing more knowledge and making sense of this stuff. So I, I, I thought this, uh, this series would, would present sort of like an extra excellent opportunity for me to learn more about uh, the, these critical ideas and, and perspectives as well. And, and very importantly, I, I wanted these engagements to happen in a, in a relatively non-threatening, productive manner. Because I think there's this tendency where, uh, you know, there's this un, unhelpful dynamic that develops when, when criticisms are made that, uh, that the criticisms tends to be, tend to be aggressively presented. And then sort of like the other side, the mainstream psychiatrist sort of like may, may react with, uh, in, in sort of like in the state of like being totally defensive. And, and that's not really, you know, that sort of like, you know, um, offense, defense, you know, argument, counter argument sort of thing doesn't help learning or a meaningful engagement. I mean, that's good if you want to refute something or if you want to like dismiss something, but it's not conducive for learning. So, I, so it was really important to me that these interviews happen in a non-confrontational manner so that we can, uh, you know, so, the, so that the readers can sort of like think about these issues without sort of like, you know, without being threatened. So as you began this uh, Psych- Psychiatric Times interview series, you sort of ended up in the middle of two worlds that are, that weren't always speaking to each other in a very productive way. So I'm curious about, uh, I guess, two things. One, what has the response been sort of on either side? How has the mainstream psychiatric community responded to hearing these critical voices in psychiatric times? Uh, how has the critical psychiatry movement sort of at large responded? Uh, and then also, what have you noticed being in that being in that intersection, what have you noticed about that discussion, how, how it tends to play out in, online and, and on Twitter, as you mentioned? Talking about the uh, re- response, uh, overall, I, I have to say, and I was a little taken aback by this as well, overall, it has been very positive. And I was surprised by how well these interviews were re- received, at least by the people who were reading them. You know, and even by, uh, even by psychiatrists that, sort of like, you know, you would think as being thoroughly mainstream as sort of like, you know, operating within with, with, the, with the current mindset, they, a lot of them actually really found the, the interviews to be thought-provoking as, as sort of like, you know, raising a lot of interesting points. I think a lot of people may simply have uh, ignored these uh, interviews initially in, in the beginning. So I think initially, you know, you know, I think a large chunk probably d- didn't really care for these interviews that much. There was, you know, sort of like a then a relatively, you know, sort of like smaller chunk that sort of like you know found these really in- interviews to be really worthwhile and positive. And then th- there was a, a smaller group that um, sort of like you know responded in a little bit more critical manner, uh, sort of like saying, uh, you know, like I, you know, I don't really think this, like you know, such series focusing on on critical ideas is, is such a good thing that's not what we need that's not what the field needs right now so so there was a small amount of backlash but you know it, it was fairly small if you if you if you looked at the people who, who who liked these interviews you know within the psychiatric community i have to say that that the criticisms have not been to the extent that that i might have feared um, you know, when, when I started that that series. So again, I have to emphasize that I think overall the, the reaction from the from the psychiatric community was was very positive, and and I think you know to some extent you know that that may depend on 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 the way these uh, uh, ideas and arguments were presented. So for example, like, you know the, the 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 very first interview was with was with Alan Francis, and I think that. You know that said something about the the intentions of of, of the series because because Alan is, is someone who who was essentially part of the psychiatric establishment until about you know two thousand or so. I mean he was the uh, he was involved with DSM three. He was a chairman uh, task for DSM four. So he was like you know one of the architects of of modern psychiatry as you can sort of like see it. But then as uh, as the DSM five development process began. And um, and at that time, uh, Alan had pretty much retired from from his most of his professional um, psychiatric you know 
psychiatric responsibilities, he started, uh, you know, we started seeing a, a different side of him. We started sort of like seeing the, the critical side of him and he uh, started sort of like, you know, writing much more about philosophy of psychiatry. He started sort of like, you know, writing about the, the limitations of DSM, the way that DSM is uh, misapplied and misunderstood in, in, um, in, in sort of like mainstream practice. And, and what are some of the, the harmful effects that that has had um, on society society at large, but because uh, Alan has that background as being one of the architects of modern DSM, like no one can come out and say that oh, Alan, he's just anti psychiatry. Like you know, that's just an argument that no one can make in any you know good faith. So you know, I, I think starting off with the, with with someone like Alan was symbolic because it, it shows. That you know, where sort of like the series is aiming to be like firmly footed within within the psychiatric tradition, but it's also um, um, sort of like honest and it sort of like wants to explore uh, the, these criticisms um, in, in, in a genuine manner without necessarily sort of like you know going to the extreme that people you know might consider to be you know so-called anti-psychiatry and then another example you can sort of like had is that when uh, Anne Harrington's book came out last year um, a, a lot of the you know the, in, the initial reaction to that book tended to be relatively negative and, and that was mostly because you know early on people hadn't really read the book itself but they were mostly relying on on the various book reviews you know, I, w when I decided to interview Anne Harrington, I, you know, like my, I was anticipating that there's probably going to be like more backlash to the interview. But actually, you know, when, you know, I think when, when the interview came out, you know, like Anne Harrington presented herself sort of like in a very balanced, scholarly, thoughtful manner, you know, without any sort of uh, inflammatory comments or, or anything like that. And, you know, and similarly, I think the, the interview was very well received, even though the same people might have reacted. Uh, negatively to the general perception about the book. And I think that gave me a very valuable lesson about the importance of context, that it's not just what the, the arguments are saying. It's not just about the content of the argument, but the, the context of the argument also matter. And then the perceived intentions of those arguments also matter. And that I think, you know, if we want psychiatry to engage with these critical views, we have to present them in, in a context where the, where the mainstream psychiatric community would be able to engage with them. Um, I, I think since then, there have been some interviews that have uh, generated more, more controversy. I think Two interviews in particular, one with uh, Joanna Moncrief, I, I, I thought uh, generated a lot of discussion sort of like on both sides, you know, like, you know, some people sort of like, you know, felt really uh, strongly that uh, sort of like what Moncrief was saying was wrong or sort of like, you know, or they sort of like, you know, they... They didn't sort of like, you know, like the overarching sort of like uh, trajectory of those comments. But at the same time, uh, Moncrief has, has a large uh, fan following as well. Um, and I think there were a lot of people who really liked that interview. Then uh, the interview with uh, Giovanni Fava, I, I think, was was more controversial because I, we had touched upon some of the more uh, sensitive issues uh, surrounding um, psychopharmacology, especially these concerns related to possibility of worsening long-term outcomes in a subset of patient, uh, issues of withdrawal, and then some of the other critical issues surrounding psychopharm. And, and I did notice that, uh, that the, the Giovanni Fava interview definitely generated more uh, critical comments and then some more backlash, uh, at least um, on online and, and, and on Twitter. Um, so kind of like, so, you know, I, I think like talking, uh, talking about sort of like how these uh, conversations happen on Twitter, you know, I'm seeing a similar sort of uh, polarization uh, between sort of like, you know, people defending mainstream psychiatry and, and people uh, criticizing mainstream psychiatry is that sort of like you're seeing this exchange, this back and forth between uh, sort of like relatively extreme positions. People get really sort of like aroused and sort of like, you know, emotionally uh, in, engaged in these de debates. And sometimes these debates like turn pretty ugly. And, you know, and at the same time, sort of like, you know, I think the, the you know, the, the way in which a, a sort of like a philosophical perspective can 
you know, offer you a little bit of nuance, a little bit of stability in the atheism, new atheism debate, you know, having a little bit of that uh, philosophical sensibility can help you sort of like be grounded in sort of like, you know, in the, in the polarized debates that we're currently seeing on, 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 on social media when it comes to psychiatry, critical psychiatry as well. That leads perfectly into to what I was hoping to talk about next. Uh, you've proposed this idea of conceptual competency as a framework for improving mental health training and psychiatry, and the and the goal there is to bring some philosophy training to uh, to psychiatrists and other mental health professionals. I'm wondering what you think um, philosophy would add. How would it help? trainees coming into the field be part of these conversations that you're talking about between critical perspectives and mainstream views? How would it change practice? And what do you think some of the major conceptual issues are that um, trainees should be exposed to? Uh, I've been very engaged in in efforts to promote a Remote philosophy of psychiatry uh, amongst among psychiatric trainees, and uh, and while I was a chief resident uh, in, at my uh, psychiatry residency program, I uh, I developed this uh, sort of like preliminary uh, curriculum for for teaching philosophy of psychiatry to psychiatry trainees, and w- which I implemented at my own program for for two consecutive years with. Uh, and it was received very well by 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 the residents, and you know I, we ended up publishing a report on that in academic psychiatry. And then uh, recently, uh, me and Scott Waterman, we kind of like got together and we uh, wrote this piece for academic psychiatry in which we are arguing for this notion of uh, conceptual competence in psychiatry. And I think you know we definitely weren't the first ones uh, to like talk about this. You know, you yourself have have written about conceptual competence when it comes to psychiatric diagnosis. Diagnosis in in the past, but I think when it comes to like you know the, the mainstream psychiatry, we were probably one of the more uh, prominent voices in talking about this. And our, our basic sort of like notion was that you know it's pretty well established now how there are all these uh, implicit conceptual assumptions that that are guiding uh, psychiatric perspectives, sort of like you know assumptions related to you know what what a what a psychiatric disorder is, assumptions related to what the psychiatric classification represents, uh, assumptions related to sort of like the border between uh, normal and disordered. You know, if we recognize that there are all these uh, conceptual uh, assumptions and conceptual ideas that that are influencing psychiatric perspective, then why don't we talk about these assumptions and examine them and sort of engage with them in a more explicit and, and rigorous manner? You know, like, why do we sort of like let it stay implicit? So the main sort of like idea is that when we train psychiatrists to recognize the conceptual ideas that that are influencing their approach, the conceptual ideas that that are dictating and sort of like guiding their their practice. And I think it is precisely our neglect of these conceptual ideas that has led to some of the more widespread problems of uh, rification of, of psychiatric constructs when we think that, you know, these uh, DSM constructs represent some sort of uh, discrete d- diseases that exist out there. Are we sort of like, you know, we attribute more reality to, to these constructs than, than is warranted or sort of like, are the issue of uh, widespread medicalization, uh, you know, sort of like how do we draw the 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 boundary of what should fall within the domain of medicine and how should we sort of like understand the situation you know right now the uh you're sort of like you know the, the process of medicalization just kind of like you know operating through its own logic and has been we're sort of like we're seeing this steady expansion in um in sort of like you know the, in the proportion of uh, the population that that falls with um, sort of like you know under um under these various constructs so my main goal you know in sort of like in promoting conceptual competence is that you know that trainees start asking these questions that they become more explicit about uh, these hidden uh, philosophical ideas and and I think once that happens then we can begin to ask like more meaningful questions about you know like what to do next and you know how 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 can we change things if we have more awareness if we have more understanding then um, then I think we can um, engage with these uh, philosophical issues we can engage with these critical issues in in a more productive manner and we can start uh, making the the changes in our practice that that need to happen 
There have been other movements in the field of psychiatry recently, such as the, the movement for multicultural competence and humility to help train mental health professionals to think about the role of culture in experiences and expressions of distress, and also for structural competence, which is a movement to think about the ways in which institutions, structural discrimination, systemic racism impact uh, clients and patients. So I'm wondering how does uh, conceptual competence, you know, complement these other movements, and you know, what would it add to to those existing movements in the field? I, I think the the development of of cultural competence and, and structural competence are are some of the most uh, promising developments that that uh, that have, that have happened in in medicine and psychiatry at large over the over the last uh, ten to fifteen years, and and I, I think that these movements are, are really forcing us to uh, in, engage with with issues of of cultural diversity, the, the way uh, culture affects, uh, you know, medical presentations, including uh, psychiatric presentations. And very importantly, too, you know, when we're discussing culture that we don't uh, assume the, the Western perspective to be the default natural perspective. And, you know, so I think sort of like, you know, getting away from that dangerous sort of mindset and sort of like, you know, looking at um, culture from sort of like this, this larger perspective and being more mindful of the ways in which we can be more respectful and we can be more understanding of the, of the way culture interacts with, with medical and psychiatric problems. And and then, you know, I think uh, structural competence is, is doing a really wonderful job in highlighting the ways in which uh, various uh, social systems, the way sort of like the forces of, uh, of oppression, uh, sort of like, you know, whether this is like gender discrimination, racial discrimination, whether this is uh, economic inequality, you know, whether it's extreme, uh, extreme poverty, you know, like how are these influencing uh, like medical conditions? How are they influencing their prognosis? And, and how are they influencing uh, access to treatment? And, uh, and there's a pretty good uh, uh, body of literature to now show that, that we need to be more, that physicians uh, and psychiatrists need to be more mindful of the way, of the way these social forces operate if we are to uh, provide good care to, to our, to our uh, people and that we just don't just have to look at the individual patient in front of us, but we also have to think about uh, society at large. And to take this a little bit further, if a psychiatric trainee or a psychiatrist were to to make a study of uh, conceptual competence uh, curriculum or or to utilize the framework, how do you imagine that that would change daily practice? And you know, if you were a, a service user showing up to a, a psychiatric visit, how might you experience that visit differently if if that training had been available? It's difficult to sort of like say exactly how uh, conceptual competence would would change psychiatric pr practice primarily because the emphasis is, is first on 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 recognizing what the what the hidden assumptions are and and what uh, sort of like you know the questions are that that need answering the approach of conceptual competence doesn't necessarily provide the answers themselves because because when it comes to philosophical questions, you know, whether these are questions in philosophy of medicine, philosophy of psychiatry, or philosophy of science largely, you know, philosophical questions rarely have clean cut, you know, settled answers. It's, it's more of a process of dialogue that you have to sort of like, you know, engage with, with, a, with a question. You have to sort of like, you know, think about it and sort of like you have to reflect on it. But, but one, one thing it does do is that it helps weed out some of the bad answers. You know, sort of like some of the, uh, you know, there are some approaches to psychiatry that, you know, if you are conceptually competent, you can see that they are, you know, mistaken. So, for example, uh, you know, this rarefied view of, of DSM as representing sort of like, you know, discrete disease entities as if, you know, uh, that, that these uh, criteria represent some sort of reality that is above and beyond. You know, I, and I, I think, you know, someone who is conceptually competent is is better able to understand the the pragmatic nature or sort of like you know of these constructs or or sort of like the, the functions that that these constructs serves. So I, I think um, conceptual competence can help psychiatrists be immune to some of the uh, some of the misguided tendencies that that we are seeing in in current practice. And I think by virtue of being more thoughtful. 
you know, like my hope is that they would be able to engage with, um, with patients and with the society at large in, in a much more healthy fashion. Because right now what we're seeing, you know, if you, if you look at the public education that is being done uh, with regards to, um, to psychiatry, the public is getting a very sort of like biomedical understanding of what a disease is. There, you sort of like, you know, there was all this talk of chemical imbalance, you know, th- there still is to some extent, but if you go back 10, 10, 15 years, there was a lot more talk of, of chemical imbalance or sort of like, of, you know, there's still talk of uh, disorders being brain diseases, things like that. So, you know, the, the public is getting a certain version of uh, of how these things should be understood, but someone who has a better conceptual and philosophical understanding of these issues can easily see that these claims that are being made about brain disease and some of these other things they you know uh, they are somewhat simplistic and they, they might not be helpful and that that a more conceptually healthy understanding of these disease categories of these uh, disorder categories is going to be very different so you know they you know if they if they have that uh, sort of like openness or like you know this this conceptual uh, understanding uh, you know in their mind that i think when they're seeing patients when they're informing patients about diagnosis when they're educating them or when they're listening to their concerns i i think you know my hope is that it, it would have an influence in uh, on that as well and we would be able to like think more more outside the box and we would be able to listen in, in a more uh healthy and sincere manner to to some of the the long-standing concerns that the consumer survivor exhibition community has had yes thank you it sounds like the conceptual competence would lead to, as you're speaking about, um, a change in the in the relationship between uh, service users and, and providers as well, and that there would be, um, you said, more humility um, and maybe some more openness and less a sort of expert who is identifying something that's very easy to identify and more of a dialogue between parties. Would you say that's accurate? Exactly. And, and I think the, the emphasis on, on humility is something that is very important to me. In fact, one of the elements of conceptual competence that we outline in our paper is uh, the, the sort of like the fourth element is conceptual humility. Sort of like this idea that, that these are really challenging questions that, you know, there are often competing answers, you know, reasonable people can disagree. And that the, the, the best approach we can take is sort of like, you know, be open-minded, be humble, about the possibility that you know what we are thinking may not turn out to be the case that that we could be wrong and i think that sense of humility can uh enable us to uh sort of like have a dialogue in a, in a more open and sincere manner and also listen to other perspectives um you know even if we may not agree with them immediately you know at the very least if we begin to engage with them to listen to them to uh to give them the the respect and the attention they deserve i think we would see a very different sort of psychiatry if that happens Absolutely. And thank you so much for this interview today. And uh, thanks for joining us here on the Madden America podcast. Thank you again. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.